I told you we'd get a nice opportunity to feel the suspense as that candle was being lit. So I talked about last week, you guys modeled it perfectly, so that was good. We're in the Advent season, and I hope you feel the coziness of this place. I know it's a, always an interesting contrast with the bright sun outside here in December, but here we are, and we're preparing our hearts for Christmas and the coming of Jesus. And in order to help us to do that as we continue in our worship, I'm going to invite you to find 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 9. We'll do the first 11 verses. Last week, we looked at Moses and the story of Exodus and how that is really the, the foundational story of how God is a God of rescue, how God wants to rescue us. And now we're going to move. We're going to take a little leap in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the time of kings. And we're going to look at David. So last week we looked at Moses and how Moses' character as a leader uh, taught us something about who Jesus is. And now we're going to look at David and how David as a king and a leader and his character is going to teach us something about who Jesus is. So uh, let me pray and then we'll read from 2 Samuel. Lord Jesus, you are good and you are in this place. Bend our hearts so that we might be able to receive all that you would want to give. Help us uh, to understand your word so that we might bring it into our daily lives, into our discipleship, and may it serve as an exciting uh, message that would Get us anticipatory of Christmas and this great gift, Emmanuel, God with us. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Second Samuel. You guys remember the Old Testament? I know I've been John a long time. Second Samuel chapter nine, starting at verse one. I'll read the first five verses and then we'll pause and we'll go to the next verses. It says this, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Mekir, son of Amiel. A couple background ideas as we are learning from this text. As you may have noticed, David is really establishing his kingdom in this story. So David has won many battles now. There's no longer a rivalry between Saul and David because Saul has died in battle and so has his son Jonathan, David's friend. And there's a question 
that's sort of lurking in the background of the story, which is what kind of kingdom will David rule over? What will David's kingdom be like? And so you saw he asked the question, is there anybody left? And many scholars point out that Ziba, who worked for Saul, who is now being questioned by David, would have probably felt a threat in this question, even though it sounds very benevolent from David. Maybe to Ziba it sounded like sarcasm, like, is there anybody left that I could bless from Saul's household? And why would that be the case? Because we all know, we, we know enough about kings and kingdoms that the typical response to being in charge would be the first action of getting rid of any rivals. And Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, so he's in the line of Saul. So there's Saul, then Jonathan, then Mephibosheth. And so perhaps the way that Ziba is answering this question is more like, well, yeah, there's somebody here, there's still somebody left, but they're crippled, they're outcasts, they're really no threat to you, David, and your kingdom. So there's a tension here, right? Ziba, who was probably afraid to talk to David, wondering what would happen to him. And also Mephibosheth is summoned into the royal household. And so there's a sense, the question's in the air. What does this mean for Mephibosheth? So we pick it up in verse 6. When Mephibosheth son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay honor to him, and David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table." Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's, your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. And bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's grandson of your master will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So just to recap here. Right? The grandson of the king's enemy, a potential rival with a physical ailment, 
which in a culture like this would have made him unclean to sit at the royal table, an outcast defeated, living in shame. And King David tells Ziba, Saul's servant, to give him everything that belonged to Saul, the former king, who would have had plenty. And so he's reestablishing the gifts, the inheritance of the kingdom in this line. Well, why does David do this? We see in the story that there was a promise, right, that was made, that David's being sincere, that a long time ago when David was eating at the table with Saul in the palace and there was a rivalry that was growing and there was tension that was growing between the two of them that Jonathan and David, who became close friends, actually devised a plan was a plan to surmise the real threat of Saul. Is Saul going to try and kill David or not? They were unsure, and so David goes and hides in a field, and they make a promise to one another, and Jonathan promises that he will warn David if his life is threatened. And in this covenant they make in the friendship, so too Jonathan asks for something. He says this, And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Now, by the time of this story, probably nobody remembered this promise between two friends, and it would have been easy, as many kings had done before, to ignore this promise. There was no accountability for this promise. But for the love of Jonathan... Mephibosheth is restored and welcomed at the king's table. Now, in answering the question, what would David king, David's kingdom be like, think of what it must have been like for each and every day for Mephibosheth, his enemy, to be carried to the table, the royal palace, unable to care for himself, but with the king and the privileges of the kingdom and the assignment to the servants that they would take care of the land, he is the pure beneficiary of this great gift, a signpost standing in the middle of the Old Testament about how the kingdom, God's kingdom, is a kingdom of grace, pure grace, undeserved grace. As we turn the pages uh, to the New Testament, we see that Matthew begins his gospel by giving us a genealogy, and the first line says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. The genealogy goes to great lengths in order to connect Jesus to this royal lineage. One day Jesus is at a Pharisee's house and he's teaching on what God is like, what the community of God is like. And he describes how God has made this great banquet. He set the table and he's teaching, uh, he sends out the servants to go invite guests to come to this great banquet. And the servant comes and reports back the responses to these invitations. One guy 
says, I can't make it because I just got some new land. I got to take care of it. Another guy says, I just got some new oxen. Can't hang out with you. Can't make it to the party because I'm busy taking care of my oxen. Another guy says, just got married. Got to take care of my wife. Not going to make it to the banquet. So Jesus in this parable teaches. He says, okay then. He tells the servant to go back out again. And he says, invite a different kind of person. He says, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, with the story of Mephibosheth in the back of our mind, doesn't this add a new texture to the story? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. These are the ones who are invited to the Lord's table. Pastor Chuck Swindoll says this, Grace isn't picky. Grace doesn't look for things that have been done that deserve love. Grace operates apart from the response or the ability of the individual. Grace is one-sided. It is God giving himself in full acceptance to someone who does not deserve it, can never earn it, and will never be able to repay. Like David before him, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of grace. And like Mephibosheth, we are invited. Not only that, the king is willing to carry us to his table. Jesus, again, is caught hanging with the wrong people, sinners, and tax collectors, And so he tells another parable. He says, suppose if one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Does he not? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Now, doesn't that teaching, understanding Mephibosheth teach us a little more? a deeper texture to Jesus standing in the line and royal lineage of David. What is God's kingdom really like? Why is this so important on Christmas? Well, I think the Christmas song, O Holy Night, which I'm sure we will sing in this season, captures something of what's so important. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining In the night of our dear Savior's birth, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. We most certainly live in a weary world, don't we? This past week, perhaps you heard that our local high school had to shut down for a time where they needed to do investigation because students had brought guns onto campus. We live in a weary world. We live in our own hearts. We sense the heaviness of the trouble and difficulty of all that befalls this weary world. And yet, what is it that gives the soul its worth? It is this gift of God's grace 
It is the thing that we need most. And we gather together to wait for in this season. Let me show you one picture to help illustrate the point here. This is a picture that was taken in 1918 in Minnesota. It's called Grace. And it's a picture that captured the minds of the people of Minnesota, of all places. And it became the official, official picture of the state legislature. And it grew in popularity and popularity over time. People ask the question, what is it about this particular picture that made it such a standout picture? Why it was the one that was chosen? In 1918, historians point out that it was a hard time in the country. Americans were dying daily in Europe as World War, II, uh, World War I raged on, excuse me, with no end in sight. Millions more died worldwide from a Spanish flu outbreak and killed an estimated 675,000 in the U.S. And in that season, also, Minnesota saw its deadliest natural disaster, a series of fires in October in Duluth and Moose Lake that killed 450 people. But the historian says we don't have to have lived into 1918 to find the importance of this picture. The idea of serenity in a turbulent time. As T.S. Eliot once put it, the still point of a turning world. This is God's grace. God's grace is the still point in a turning world. And I truly believe that the answer to a weary world, a, heaven, a heavy-laden world, is this message. We need God's grace to anchor us, to rescue us. In a sea of shame and despair, God's grace stands to cover us. to provide the deepest sense and the deepest sense of our being that there isn't shame, but there is something else. There is the great love of God there to say, would you come? Would you come and sit at this table? And claim your inheritance in the kingdom of God. God's work will not be done, church, until every single person has received this invitation and every single soul has felt its worth. Would you pray with me? God, we know, we know in our heart of hearts, this is what we need most. Some of us have known this since we were children. We've heard messages of your grace 
And yet we still know that there is a way in which we have not received it in its fullness yet. And so I pray that your love would permeate in this place, that this message of grace, this truth that our sins are forgiven, that every wrong, that every thing that we have ever done that was not in alignment with your will has been taken care of because of Jesus' death on the cross, his forgiveness of a weary world. And Lord, we know that there are so many yet who have not felt their own soul's worth. And so we pray that you would make us the carriers of this grace to a weary world to extend to them, Lord, as David extended to Mephibosheth this great invitation into the kingdom of God where everything is taken care of. We pray all this in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.